0: Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of 4 Good Startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a 4 Good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Today, we're chatting to Tom Hooper, founder and CEO of Third Space Learning. Tom has dedicated over 12 years of his life to making learning and tutoring accessible and affordable to everyone. First in his business, BrightSpark, which he successfully exited, and now in his second venture, Third Space Learning, where they've built a scalable model for helping children from disadvantaged backgrounds get access to the tutoring support they need. So I'm going to start by delving into your background a little bit, if that's okay. So I was having a little hunt around on LinkedIn and uh, doing my research and I saw that you actually started out in politics and I guess if things had gone down a different route, we could be looking at a, a politician or a future prime <laughs> minister. Uh,
1: I don't think that path was ever one that was sat in front of me. So I, I, that said, I loved it. I loved the year I spent in Parliament. So I did politics and philosophy at university um, and I never imagined that I'd ever work in politics. But after i remember in the summer that i left the university of edinburgh so the summer i left a friend called me and said there's a job as a research assistant in parliament you know why don't you come along with me and meet some people and i did and the next day they said you know if you want a job for a year come in and i just it it was brilliant i loved it absolutely loved it it's you know my office was in big ben It, it had the atmosphere the the frankly the partisanship, the it was just it was really exciting. Um and it was obviously something I'd studied it, I was really interested in it. Um lots of young people. It was it was great. It was really I loved it. I loved it. So it was never it's it's always been an interest which I studied and you know, like most people, I'm still very interested in politics and policy. Um and indeed it's very closely aligned with the work we do at Third Space Learning. Um, increasingly so as we grow and as, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but, but the problem that we help to solve has sadly, um, grown significantly post pandemic with learning loss and, and the attainment gap. Um, and kind of fortunately government is investing a lot more money and, and, and policymakers are investing a lot more time and energy in trying to figure out how we solve these sorts of problems. So, um, yeah, it politics um was never going to be a path for me but working in parliament was amazing it was closely linked to
0: uh, uh you know, i suppose motivation and interest that i've always had and, and still hold and i then noticed you you went from that you managed a fund for a few years before moving to education again didn't seem like the necessary like the linear career path you might you might imagine what what led you to, to do the fund, fund manager role and then, and then how did you finally end up in, in education?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. It, it was very apparent that I couldn't, there's only so long I could spend doing something I didn't care about. Um, and, but what was good, it was, you know, it was well paid. I paid off my debts from university. I saved up some money and that, that allowed me to, to quit when I did, which was after six years in 2009, take some time out and think about think more clearly about what I would be passionate about and what I wanted. And that's led me to founding my first business, Brightspark.
0: So um, we're going to focus mainly on talking about third-space learning, but to chat about Brightspark for a little bit, um, where did the interest in education come from?
1: Well, I suppose the underlying motivation was not education per se. So when I thought of, of the kind of factors that motivated me, um, I wanted to be a part of building a business so founding or early stage I knew that I wanted that business to do something that had that achieved a social good um something that something I could feel like it was adding to society I was was solving something that mattered I knew that was something that social enterprise interested me but I wanted I wanted that motivation Um, I knew that that would that would really satisfy me I didn't know how that would manifest itself. So it didn't necessarily have to be education and education is a fairly obvious one, but it could have been in other sectors, but it was more, you know, are you solving a social problem in, in, in an innovative way? That that was the key question, the question of motivation that I was interested in. And then team as well, as I said, I, I wanted to, I wanted to be a part of a team and building a culture that, that I enjoyed, that I feel satisfied by the, yeah. that matters. Like you want your work to matter. It's such a big part of your life. Yeah, I wanted to feel I wanted to really care. Okay, that's so for linking back to your previous question about finance. Oh yeah, I enjoyed it, I'm glad I did it. I just but I didn't care. There's only so long you can do that. So that those were the motivations, like stage of company, social impact of company, culture of company. That that's what I knew I wanted to try and cater to. And then kind of how that translated into into Bright Spark and education was looking at, it was actually looking at some of the examples of where Indian tutors were working with US students and thinking that through from a product and a a social impact perspective and thinking, well, you could take models like that. And actually, if you really want to try and um, have work with children who really need that tuition, you should be working with schools in partnership with teachers, And building the product in a way that allowed teachers to direct it at those children with the greatest need in a way that supported their class teaching. Um, And originally, I didn't, I hadn't thought I'd do that as a business. I just saw it and I thought, that's so interesting. But actually, what if you did it like this? You could, you know, you could really create something that could have more social value. Um, And then just, I sort of found myself just thinking about it the whole time. Um, and then it became quite clear that, okay, right. So you got to do this. And Brightspark became, um, and Brightspark was this extraordinary experience where I set the company up. It was the first business I founded. I was, it was just me, self funded with a, a like a pitiful budget, but what little savings I had launched with, um, and this is also back in 2009, 10. So it was kind of pre-Google Apps for business, I think pre-AWS, like the tools that make it a lot easier to build a business were not there. And I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I didn't have any money. And it was just me. And I was making every mistake in the book. So it was like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't great. But, you know, got the business launched, got customers, got a lot of interest. And, and I mean, extraordinarily within two months of launching the business, I had two offers of investment and one of partnership from strategics in the sector, and I, I took one of investment from a company called Tez. Uh, um, became a effectively a product of theirs, um, which pre investment sounded like the best ever thing. So wow, this is amazing! I could plug into that network. It's going to be great. Post investment, I I kind of stumbled into all of the challenges that um, kind of corporate investments and um, strategic investments, it, when they don't work, will tend to demonstrate. Um, but nonetheless, it, anyway, then sold the rest of it in uh, 2012. So the deal was done February 11. sold the rest of it summer, July 2012. And it wasn't a great success, but it was, you know, found that it got customers, got investment, sold it for a modest return on a modest outlay on my part, but it you know kind of stepping back it it was a really valuable experience for me um it helped me learn a lot um and also the difference between two thousand and thirteen when I found a third space in two thousand and nine when I found a bright spark Like in so many ways like the education sector the technology sector the funding sector um it was just it was so different and it plus everything that I' had learned it it created a much better Start point for Third Space, um, which in many ways took the lessons learned from Bright Spark. or in many ways it did, and um, informed the founding of Third Space.
0: So I was going to ask because I don't know anything about Bright Spark. And I just kind of saw from looking at your LinkedIn that in under three years you built it, grown it, sold it, and I was like, that sounds like an incredible success story. So it's always interesting to hear the kind of details behind it. But it sounds like it was a great opportunity in the sense of. Kind of cutting your teeth in your first venture learning how not to do some things and setting you up for success in the, the next venture
1: yeah yeah i, I think that's that's a, it it was um if you look at it on the face value you just said it sounds like a great success it wasn't um but it was very valuable for it was a very valuable experience and i'm very grateful to have had it um yeah so you know, it's so far third space has been far more successful than that. Um and let's hope it continues to be so.
0: <laughs> and normally when you go and you kind of you know exit a business and you in in you stay in a similar sector, there can be some restrictions. Were there any issues in terms of like non-compete or anything you were doing between the business you'd sold and third space learning? Or was there a, a major difference between the two?
1: No, there was no um issues of non-compete. No. And and interesting when when we <laughs> Yeah, so I was just thinking back to that time. Um, the 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 basic agreement was they wanted me to to, to um, kind of evolve what Brightspark was, and I just said I, I don't I don't think that's going to work within this wider business. And so the basic agreement was you can go and kind of found a new business based on this, and we'll buy you out. Um, so it's all very amicable. Um, and no, there was no non-compete, and and I think to your to your second question about which I think was kind of what what did how did third space differ and what did I learn? I think you know, and these are all things that you you like people say and that obvious, but it's very easy to make the mistake. One of the mistakes with Bright Spark was trying to cater to everyone on day one, so it was just me, and I was selling. So I was running. It's, it's a ridiculous to think now tutor operations in India with our partner out there, product, sales, onboarding, um, but, but then also trying to sell to primary schools, secondary schools, adult colleges, and families. And when I say trying, like we did. So we had a small number of customers in each that were all wanted different things, quite understandably said different markets. And yet with very, very little resource. I was trying to cater to all of it, which was completely ridiculous. Um, and in my mind at the time, I was like, "Okay, this proves that you can cater, you can sell to all these markets." But actually, what it showed was you're, you're you're just destined to succeed in none of them. Um, and I think with with third space, one of the the and to an extent, we did this too much. But we were very, very, very focused on our first and core market, which was primary schools, where early intervention is critical for long term success in learning, Um, particularly in subjects like maths, you've got a much greater challenge in terms of specialist math teacher recruitment in maths. So the the problem solution is very well geared to primary school learning. Um, And I think we did a really good job of really getting under the skin of that customer and what they want and how to speak to them and how to sell to them. Um, If anything, the problem was, we then we took too long to start expanding outside of that. So inevitably when you're building a business, you're gonna take shortcuts at the beginning because you got to because you've got to prove what you can do with with often without enough knowledge or resource or time to do it. And that's the nature of the game. But I think for too long we took shortcuts, which meant that we kind of hard coded this MVP into that market segment. Which made it harder to a improve it for that market segment and b expand it outside of that, um, and that was definitely a mistake we made, and to some extent are still paying the price for now, um, but you know it is it is, it is. Um, and we're doing all the right things now to make sure that we have a much more kind of the platform and capabilities more scalable. We can better run experiments in core market, in new markets. Um, and we're starting to see that as we expand into new markets as well. Um, so, yeah, that was a key learning from Brightspark, but you know that definitely drifted into a mistake within Third Space as well.
0: And for anyone listening that's not familiar with Third Space Learning, could you just give an overview of, of what Third Space Learning is? What, yeah, of what you course. focus on doing?
1: So, the, the goal of Third Space Learning is to make one to one tuition accessible to children in need. Um, and the way we do that is, I suppose, threefold. We all tuition is online, and that allows us to recruit and train specialist math tutors in Asia, where there's a huge population of talented mathematicians. Um, there's huge growth in university education, um, basically, huge new populations of talented, well-educated English speakers coming online, and that allows us to um, pay well, and train well, and create great job opportunities in Asia, notably India and Sri Lanka. Um, and it allows us to deliver a kind of whole new supply side market, effectively at high scale, well trained, and low cost to reach children in need in English schools. Um, so that's the kind of key innovation behind Third Space, um, and, and obviously it's plugging into kind of big macro trends in terms of global connectivity and education trends across Asia and the need to support disadvantaged children across UK, US, and more developed economies. Um, I suppose the second part of that is we work exclusively with schools. So if you want to reach those children, working hand in hand with schools and teachers is absolutely critical. It's the best I mean common sense, but all the research buys this up as well. Uh one to one intervention is will have the greatest impact when done in harmony with what children are learning in class, and thereby having teachers oversee the two of those things is gonna have the best impact. Furthermore, when you start looking at budgets, lack of at home um, and increasingly budgets within school for those sorts of children, um, it's the best environment basically, to deliver a service like ours. Um, so the online model that we've built is all built around how you integrate or allow teachers to integrate online one-to-one tuition within class teaching strategies. Um, so that's that's what we're trying to achieve. Um, that's how we do it, and that's the kind of key innovations behind it. Um, we've delivered around 1.4 million hours of teaching to around about 120,000 children, I in close to 4,000 schools across the country now. And just over 50% of those pupils are eligible for pupil premium. So we, we very much kind of hit that demographic that the business is intended to. Um we're a part of the government's national tutoring programme. So the government has a five billion pound four year program um, that's aimed at helping catch up learning loss from the pandemic. Um and that learning loss is continuing today. It's been three heavily disrupted years of learning. So it's a massive problem that has had a disproportionate impact on children from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um and, you know, to give the government the credit, they were very quick to move to kind of mobilize policy and funding to help with this problem but it's you know this problem is is a long-term one it was before but it's it's inflated now so we're, we're very pleased to be a part of that program and the accreditation that comes with it um and i think the next steps for us we're, is to really consolidate our position in in uk schools primary and secondary um where there is a you know the, the market the need the funding are better than ever um, this year we're starting to look at testing out um, how we can adapt our offering to u s schools where the i mean it's, it's similar um I mean obviously you get a much bigger market much more funding but fundamentally the the problem is the same schools but u s schools were affected you know, a lot of them were closed for two two years that causes huge problems um and guess what though that the impact of those sector closures and the impact across the sector hits children from disadvantaged backgrounds at a far higher rate than, than their peers. So solutions that are scalable, that are school-oriented, that are affordable, are in high demand, and I think we play a really important part out there. Um, and then beyond that, we want to look at moving from school to home, but certainly our, our kind of mission as a company to help close the attainment gap and support disadvantaged children through the through accessible tuition, is best served by working with schools, which is what our focus has been um, and will continue to be. And I think we'll always be at the heart of what we do. Um, So if we do start working with families, it will be um, the evidence from how we work with schools and the trust will always be at the heart of that relationship with the family as well.
0: I've got loads of questions, but I'm going to part them for a second and come back to them in a little bit. And I just wanted to go back to what the early days of third space learning so you, you've you've exited bright spark on amicable terms you have some very good knowledge of the sector and space and how you can build a scalable tutoring model um where were you when you started third space like was it just yourself did you have a small team of people with you was it self-funded initially uh, and like the the initial hypothesis that you were going to market after already validating some of that in the previous business like can you cover off those things for me yeah so i I
1: spent i spent some time post bright spark and pre third space just trying to think this through because i didn't want to i didn't want there to be any kind of emotional motivation for founding third space i wanted to try and be really disciplined as to why and i i knew the problem we were solving but i felt very confident in that i.e., the attainment gap and the challenge of of um, particularly primary school level recruiting and training math specialists, teachers to try and help solve that in, in the way that we ideally would want it all solved, right? The best, the best thing you can do for education is have really good quality teachers in class, supported and retained to do their job. So anything that Third Space does is to supplement that reality. And the best lever government can pull to try and improve education and indeed society is investing in teachers. So I felt very confident that that there, there was a problem there that we could help to solve. I knew that the, what we did with Spark worked. What I hadn't proven was that we really knew how to sell and scale. Um, and I wanted to make sure that even though I hadn't proven that, I was confident that I could do that. Confident enough to found a, a new business in that regard. And it kind of on reflection, yeah, I was. Um, and I f- felt the opportunity warranted that risk. Um, what had actually changed in the interim period so uh, and any well, many founders will know this but the government introduced the seed enterprise investment scheme and then the enterprise investment scheme, which had been around for longer. there was just a much better environment um, for, for supporting startups. At that stage to 2013-14. So I raised an SEIS round which gave us some startup capital. And with that, I said I'm going to get a basic product and I get it in some schools. Those schools will tell you that they like it and they've got budget for it and I'll pay for it. We did that. Um, and and those initial investors put a bit more money in to help us get a bit further down the road. We then were talking to a number of kind of bigger consortium of angel investors. Uh, sorry, at that point, I was thinking of the questions. It was me plus, I think, I think there were four of us at that point in time. So this was kind of year one launch in 2013. Um, and at that, the next stage was our, the, a group of angel investors, of social impact angel investors from a company called, an organization called Clearly So who might well be known to a number of your, you know, in terms of the founders for good and social enterprise, they're quite well known. Um, and they, the big question from them was, have you got repeatable sales process? Which is so difficult when you're in that founding stage where kind of in your mind you're thinking, I need the money to prove that I can grow the business. But understandably everyone's saying, I don't want to put money into a business that's not growing. And it's that chicken and egg situation. But it's a very fair question from investors, um, and I remember very clearly in it was November two thousand and thirteen, thinking we're going to run, run out of money. I don't have a repeatable sales process, and unless I've got one, I don't. Then I'm going to put that cash in, and we've all been there, and indeed I've been there several times since. But that um, that was a kind of real moment where. Where, um, I suppose pressure forced us to experiment and, and kind of, we basically figured out that what we were selling or how we were packaging up those space in terms of you can buy very affordable hours of online tuition and you can deploy them however you want, just was not actually solving a problem because no one, no, no head teacher was thinking, I wish I had affordable tuition. Or maybe they were, but it, that wasn't packaged as a problem. What we then took it out was as, We have, we sold our SATs booster, as we call it, which was, we help children who are at risk of not reaching their required results in their SATs exam in year six, we help them achieve that. The way we do that is an online program with a money back guarantee. The way we make that affordable is this, this and this. And that did solve a problem is the tuition and all the rest of it was a means to an end. And that end is the problem of children um, children failing, which keeps head teachers awake at night, right? So, um, and that was a really important moment because that then did start to prove a repeatable sales process backed up by good growth in revenue. So then we, we got a good angel round off the ground, I think about 750 grand at that point. And then about a year later, we did a, I suppose you'd call it, a seed where like kind of our first institutional money um, from Nesta and Ananda to, you know, two very good social impact investors. Um, and then kind of since then, all the highs and lows of building the business and hitting your targets, missing your targets,
0: cash flow, all the rest of it. Um, <laughs> all that fun and games. Okay. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you'll be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out. www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Any any standouts on the, on the kind of like big pivots or... Big kind of like heart stopping moments over the last nine years.
1: No, so we've we've never we've never had um, big pivots. I think way I categorize. I think for too long we focused on selling and hitting our next sales target, which which we were good at, and investors wanted, and we we didn't pay enough attention. Certainly at board level, we didn't pay enough attention. Well, I, don't know, I think we neglected to invest in. Some of the fundamentals that would actually make that those sales genuinely sustainable and our business, you know, basically align the business with its vision rather than align the business with its next sales cycle. Um, I think that was a mistake. And that mistake came home to roost um, in what I call the second phase of the business, which was kind of 2017 to 19, where we did our Series A um, and sort of, I think we could see this coming, but. The our core schools market was tightening up. Like budgets got a lot tougher, which makes it h- harder to sell kind of supplementary services like ours into a school. Our core product was underinvested, which makes it made it harder to improve it and kind of give more value in a tighter budgetary environment for your customers. Um, and we kind of bet the ranch on new technology and an expansion into consumer, which was was risky at the time. And with the benefit of hindsight, it was. Horribly ill-conceived, and that led to a really painful couple of years, um, which was was really not fun. Like, I mean, yeah, if you want to look for the silver lining, there were valuable lessons learned, but it was it was painful, and particularly painful as a as the as the founder and CEO, because it's ultimately on you. Um, And when you're looking around and thinking, I put way too much risk on this business, I put my team under pressure. You know, it's it's a Kind of professionally it's not good, but emotionally it's not good. it was a really tough time um and but we came through it um fortunately, and I, we kind of came through it in two ways, both sort of slightly belatedly admitting the error of our ways and simplifying the business, the team um and the market focus um our investors continued to back us, put more money in um uh, which I think says a lot about, says a lot about them, frankly, and their, their support for us. And they got pretty good times on it to, you know, they were, it wasn't charity. Um, but, but I think also they, they were genuinely in line with what we were trying to do, not just the return they were trying to make. Um, and then, and then kind of shortly after that, the you know, pandemic hit and we've talked about the impact that had on schools on disadvantaged children, on the need to help solve that massive problem and all the funding that went behind it and kind of everything that we had worked to try and do, approve, and achieve in the preceding seven years, I guess, suddenly became so much more important. And, and you, know, you found a business like Thurspace and you're looking at the long, long term, like how do you build sustainable models to try and solve this problem in an innovative way? Um, And I think timing is so important for these sorts of things. And I think 2013 was just soon enough that um, technology, connectivity, um, and how receptive solutions were like that to to teachers and schools was just in time. We were just at the beginning of those changes, but certainly what happened from 2020 really transformed the recognition of, or the scale of need and funding for solutions such as third space learning and so we've grown hugely since then um and i think with we with, with that if i look together kind of silver lining of 2018-19 we learned the hard way what we should be focused on and what we should not be focused on um, and i think that discipline and prioritization is now being reflected in the business in terms of what we're doing for the for
0: long-term success and um, you said earlier about kind of what's next for Third Space is, is consolidating the UK position, but also moving into the US market where they have similar challenges and struggles. What what will be key to making that success? And and on the other side, like, what, what will be some of the challenges there? Like, will it be the fact that I imagine the US have a slightly different syllabus within there? The schooling system, or will it be more around kind of how scalable the tutu model is? Because you might have huge demand now coming in with such a big market. So I
1: think I think in in reality, the things that we spend our time focusing on discussing within the business is much more about how can we be much much better in terms of what we do, um, which then informs um, the kind of the commercial opportunity and the expansion of your addressable market. But it is. It really is much more about the, when I say systems and processes, like technology, product, like how do you make sure that the, the data and insights you got in the business are much better to inform good decision making? How do you in- ensure that the academic and learning design in your platform, your programs is better than it's ever been? So you can, you can address a far bigger market, but also with better quality and better impact and more measurable impact on that market. How do you make sure that as you go from, 2,000 tutors to 20,000 tutors, you can have a better experience for each one of them. You can have a higher standard because you've got better performance management tools and analytics on them. Um, we, I don't think, like, we don't feel we've got those systems and processes sufficient to the standard we want and the ambitions we have, and that's our overriding focus at the moment. So, kind of particularly for this next 12 months. But we know that's in order to support the expansion that is starting, um, is kind of is the more perhaps 20% of our focus as we go from primary to secondary, as we start exploring the US school market, and beyond that, as we look to to start moving from school to home as well. Um so I suppose that sorry that the the summary of that is we know that. The investment we've got to make in being far better at what we do today is critical for both short and long-term success in current and future markets. Um, a lot, and as I said, a lot of that is in terms of data infrastructure, technology architecture, um, and kind of the way we approach product and, and the customer research on the student and tutor side that we do.
0: And talking about the product for a minute, I imagine it must be quite complicated because you have um obviously a child as a user, you have the tutors that that are employees by Third Space Learning, but they're also a user of the product. You then have, I guess, the teachers that 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 it will roll up into in terms of like the progress from the from the child's learning. And then you have the actual, I guess the people are buying the product to actually the um the heads of the schools. So I imagine it must be a really complicated setup to demonstrate value up that
1: chain yeah you it's interesting because when people first get to know the business they think oh i think probably their mindset is marketplace with where you can buy in lots of services particularly things like audio when you actually get into it and you understand the interdependence between all the different users so head teacher teacher um kind of class assistant student tutor tutor manager kind of there there is how those things interplay in order to achieve what you want which is really good sessions every week where the pupil turns up audio is really good we know exactly what they need to be taught and the tutors prepped to deliver that thing um are a lot more complicated than you think um and it's like with audio like this is a good example from a technology point of view often people have thought well that's fine look there's so many different audio solutions you can just buy in when you're dealing with school firewalls and all the rest of it it, it, it's a much it's a messy complicated environment particularly when you're then working with school it leads who have to configure firewalls to you know it's yeah it's more complicated than, than one thinks um but that said i think i think an, an advantage we have is we've got a really really good understanding of how that works in the interplay between those different users and the systems and technologies that support that um and i think i think i think probably both in getting the business up and running but also in the long term that will present that will prove to be a real competitive advantage for us um you know, we currently have the majority of schools in the country on our platform, engaging with our brand, and our content, and and some of the tools within that. Um, so, I think our, our the deep understanding we've got of how schools work, including the complexities of that, is a real, real opportunity for us in the long term.
0: And um, to move on, chat to you a little bit about your kind of personal journey as a founder. You've you've had two startups now, solo founder and you mentioned earlier about some of the the tough challenges that naturally come with running a business. How, how do you cope? Like personally, when it's tough times, like what mechanisms do you have in place? And also like, who do you go to for support if you don't necessarily have a co-founder to talk to? Like who are the people around you in or outside of the business that you can go to for, for help in those moments?
1: Yeah. All good questions. I naturally I'm an optimist and I'm resilient and persistent. Like I know those are like irrespective to those space, those are characteristics that people who know me would describe me with, which makes it a lot easier to cope with the ups and downs of building a business. So that's true. I think the way I hope my team would describe my leadership as one. I, I'm not I'm not a micromanager at all. So I think giving creating an environment where people can really take ownership and have responsibility and you develop a really deep level of commitment and trust. I think it's, A, like it just seems like the most obvious way that you should be building a business. <laughs> B, research will back that up as well. Um And C, I think if you're trying to lead for the long term and you can create that culture kind of dynamic with your team, I think you said word it, it. It gives you a lot more support and reassurance in terms of being that leader and knowing that you've got that culture and that dynamic
0: around you. Because like we obviously I get to work with founders, but also co-founders and, and different dynamics. And I just wondered like when you are by yourself, and you know I'm a solo founder, I, I know how lonely it can get sometimes. But everyone have different ways of coping with that, and, and what what they need. So yeah, and and you're right, and I think the
1: the closest I've got to that, the point on being a, so, a sole founder versus a co-founder, I think the, the best way of balancing that, coping with that, is the the team culture that you build. that I think in many ways, there's a lot. There's a lot of, a lot of investors would say we'd never invested in a, a sole founder, but equally found. You know, kind of co-founding teams can present problems as well i think i would argue that if you're the right type of solo founder you've got to be good at building a culture of as i said like commitment and trust amongst your well, within your company but certainly amongst your leadership team That yeah that, that kind of eases some of those pressures um and creates yeah creates that right type of environment where it's not just you trying to take all the pressure on yourself
0: and moving on to um building and running a tech for good business or or as you mentioned like a social impact business what were you very conscious of or or you deliberately set out to do in terms of like making sure that there were the right values in place the right foundations to allow the business to like stay um stay true to its roots and what you want to set out and achieve because as businesses get bigger it gets harder and it can dilute
1: So, one of the things I worry about is, um, I worry that you can lose sight of the good that you actually do because you're focusing for very good reason on the things that you're not good enough at, the problems you're trying to solve, the challenges you're trying to overcome. And that can be both draining, but also cause you to forget the purpose for which you're all working and the good that you do achieve through through the work you're doing today. And that's that's difficult, you know. We work with, we've got, I mean, circa twenty thousand children a week, right? And we tend to focus on where sessions are not good enough, right? and it's it's really painful. Just seeing one session that's not good enough is painful, even though we know that the majority of the time we do a good job, like right? teachers and students, and like we do a good job, and for children that really need that. And I think trying to manage that balance between, yes, focus your energies on, on being the best you can and improving the things that need to improve. But do also find time to step back and celebrate the things that are working well to ensure that the motivation to the team that you're building and the purpose of the business does stay present um, within what you're doing. So that's something I worry about. And I think, funnily enough, things like Slack are really helpful with that. Like just sharing customer feedback and keeping that present within the business makes life a lot easier. And that's that's one thing that Slack's great for, I think. Um, we actually don't do a lot on trying to systematize um kind of values or culture or any of that stuff. I think that's a really good thing because I think that the way the teams work and the values and the way they treat each other and the way they expect to be treated is it gives me confidence that it's really within the DNA of the business um I'm always a little bit cynical when you see companies like banging their values out and really announcing to the world how amazing their culture is and so on and all the systems and processes they've got in place which I'm sure we'll probably need to do at some point but I kind of feel if it's right if it's truly there People will feel it, and it, it will kind of live through the business, but I might well be proven wrong by that at some point and I'll grow so I, I, I in truth i I think I think what we do and how we do it has a very clear social impact I think um in particular tech and startups it, you know everyone's got to have a mission all the time you know everyone's going to have a mission, and frankly, quite a few of them you look at and think is that is that really a mission, or is that actually your what your business does? Mm. And um, I slightly roll my eyes a bit sometimes when you look at some of these companies and their mission statements. Um, and I think if I look at what we do, I think it quite clearly has a design and uh, social impact and the motivation of the people who have joined the business at the beginning and throughout has been very clearly aligned with that. So I think we've been able to retain and nurture that, that culture um, and that motivation within the company uh, without having to try and systematise it.
0: Yeah, I've um, I've spoken to people about this before, but I think um like authenticity is key. You can always tell when there's this like amazing banner like mission or something that's been flagged around or these incredible values, but it's very quick to you, you can you can pretty much instantly walk through the door and speak to people and understand if that's actually what's been lived and breathed every day or if it's if it's just something yeah. like a marketing marketing ploy.
1: Yeah, and we've done that. Like we've done those exercises where you do, you do kind of, you know, what's your mission, what's your vision, what's your values, and we're like, we had, we well, remember at one point they were stuck up on the wall, and, and sort of quite quickly it all gathered dust because, I, you know, it just didn't, it didn't add anything to the business that wasn't being lived and breathed anyway. I don't know. You can't fake that sort of stuff. It's the truth of it. And I don't mean I take it for granted. I, and God, I've made mistakes before where I've had the wrong people that quite clearly, you know, they're good at what they did, but they did not have the values or the team ethos that I expect or that my team expects. And in some instances, I was too slow to make that change. But I, I do think, you know, as I said, you can't, you can't just fake these sorts of things. And I, I, I feel confident that the, the kind of depth of feeling and motivation within the company is very true. And indeed, you can see that now in the hiring as well. I think the people we've brought on board, the teams grow and expand. They're bringing on the right sort of people that reflect the cultures and the values that they've got, um, and that were reflected in kind of how the business was founded, frankly. So I, I feel confident it's got a kind of level of gravity
0: and mass that is self-sustaining. And I, I think that's the ideal situation you want to be, where you have this like genuine authenticity that oozes from from any person. Um, especially when you're hiring I, th- I think what really good companies do now, especially when it's so competitive in certain marketplaces, is how quickly they can a candidate can feel like you are true to your purpose and, and the people there are all bought in and they're all on the same page and they'd be really great fun to work with. And I think the best companies are the ones that are able to build a hiring process which gives the candidates that experience and that a lot of time from my perspective is is the difference in securing those really good people and, and not being able to get them when you can't demonstrate that effectively through the hiring process yeah yeah i agree um so to chat about hiring for a minute because that's a nice little segue and it's the last bit we'll talk about um so for context now company size it's a it's 60 plus in the uk and and over a thousand across sri lanka and india
1: is that right so we're well if you exclude our tutors we're about i think we're about 120 in sri lanka and 60 i think we're just with once we fill, once we fill the positions we've got in the UK, it'll be about mid
0: sixties. And what are the what are your kind of general principles a, a, approach to hiring? Like, what are the things you live and die by? What are the the principles or you, you pass down to your team when, when they're hiring for positions?
1: One of the reasons why we don't, and one of the reasons why we do hire well is the responsibility that the teams take for owning that process because they're bringing someone into their team who they're going to work with every day and will be a critical part of their team's success and our company's success. And I think that ownership um, and the conviction in making it a good process and hiring the right candidate is so important. And I think that's been critical to what a good job they've done, frankly, of building their teams and building the culture. Um, And it's more work for them but i think their their response would be yeah it it is more work but it 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 creates less work and more success in the long run because you can be more confident you're getting the right people the right people for their team um so i I think it's it's probably not quite the answer that, that that you were looking at but ownership of the process um is, I think has been really, really important to success from that process rather than any particular process design.
0: Gotcha. And maybe to that point, like what, when you look back and think through the different growth phases, focused on the UK for now from like, you know, zero to 10, 10 to 30, up to 50, 50 plus, they all have different challenges. Was the hardest bit getting those initial people in that could really then help you build out the teams? Or, or was it like when you look back over the last nine years, which was the hardest growth phase that you've been through from a hiring perspective?
1: So I think I think the hardest phase, I think a lot of businesses find this when you go from kind of generalist startup to the phase, the level of investment, investment and growth where you need more functional capability and design. That's quite a tricky transition. Um and we got that wrong because we, we tried to do it at a point in time where we also tried to kind of expand what we were doing. And that made it a much harder task. And we made unnecessary. It was just unnecessarily complicated. Um, but you know, when you, when you're starting, you're trying to do all these different things with a, um, a small group of people, often under resourced. You need people who can put their hand to anything. Um, but yeah, I think that transition to something that's more has more functional it doesn't I mean expertise, yes, but leadership and structure doesn't necessarily have to be functional experts. That's um that's quite a tricky one to get right.
0: Yeah, the the thing that always amazes me, especially we work a lot with kind of pre-seed seed stage businesses and you've got founders that are suddenly having to hire across sales, marketing, finance, tech, products when maybe they've only come from one of those backgrounds. And I feel like it's not really talked about, but the role of the founder is a really tough one, um, direction of the company, raising money, potentially making sure the product's on track. But then actually the hiring aspect is arguably the hardest bit to do and to get right. Because if you bring in the wrong people at the early stages, it, it can really set you back or even sink it. But I, I assume <laughs> there's no like founder training on how to hire. So I, I always... I was. Quite admire these people that seem to be quite natural.
1: No, there's not, and 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 also, you know, a ca- good candidates, a junior, junior and mid level in particular, but but also senior level, want to want to work for someone that they can learn from and progress with. And so, if you're being interviewed by a founder who doesn't know anything about technology or marketing, like how attractive is that? It'd be attractive to the right person, but but it, it offers less. Um, confidence of career progression within the domain that you're, you're recruiting them into. And that could be a challenge. Um, that could be, yeah, that could be a challenge. Um, but yeah, you're right. And it's, it's something that, that I've thought a lot about. That. How do you, how do you develop people's careers when actually you don't really know? They know a lot more about what they do than you do. And rightly so that your job is to recruit and build a team of people who were everyone in the company knows a lot more about doing their job and is far better than you could ever be at their job. But then the flip side of that is, how do you give good feedback to those people when they know a lot more about doing that job than you do? And it's it, it's interesting that that's, that's a difficult thing. But I think it, it as I've talked to people about it and reflected on it, you're not trying to tell them how to do their job. If you're trying to do that then you've got a problem, it's much more about what you expect of their leadership, what you expect them to achieve within that function, within what it is that they know how to do, um, and kind of the you know how that fits within the prioritisation of the business and the culture and values. That um, but you, you clearly shouldn't be telling Definitely. them how to do that job.
0: What's been your most impactful hire today, in terms of like helping the business get to where it is today, accelerating that trajectory?
1: You're asking me to pick a favorite.
0: <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> no, I, I wondered. You know, startups. isn't <laughs> a, a lot of it is around kind of who do I hire when, which roles needed, which one's going to have the biggest impact. There's always limited budgets. You can't hire everyone. Is Is there a particular role, less less so a person that? You look back and think that was the right hire to make at that time. That really helped us get through that phase and get us to where we are today.
1: It all, it's all, all links back to timing. Like think of people we hired and had we not hired them at that point in time, we kind of, we wouldn't have survived. I like Brian, our COO. He joined in kind of the very beginning of when we had a really tough couple of years. Um, and I think he was in like, I, I honestly don't think the business would be around if he hadn't joined. And help manage the financial product data sort of challenges we were having. Um, so that was, you know, it was incredibly valuable. Then, um, you know, there's, there's, but then equally, if I look at kind of across the business, one of the things that's amazing that I look back at now is if I look at our, not just like our senior leadership, but kind of across the management team in the business. Um, pretty much all of them either would join the company before or during that really tough couple of years we had. And the, the, I suppose the commitment they have shown and have built within the company, the trust they've built with one another through that tough time has created, I believe, a really a really focused team who know exactly what they've got to do, they know what they don't have to do, they understand the constraints and opportunities of the business, um, and that kind of cascades down into the culture and, and focus the teams they've built. Um, and you know, as, as as hard as those sort of couple of years were, 2018, 19, I, I, I hope, and, and sort of have to hope, I also believe that they've been instrumental in what we've achieved since. When, in you know, all things being equal, revenue should be four times, like next year's revenue should be quadruple what it was two years ago. Um, we're profitable, our market is expanding, so the, the business is transforming. I think it's because of the, the how that team, that management team, that leadership team was forged through... Um, having having the same purpose, that same motivation for coming into the business and through the the tough times and the le- lessons learned at that period of time,
0: what do you think are some of the things that third space do really well that helps attract people like I know before we started recording, you were talking about kind of well I know personally that I think being a social impact business is a massive attractor in itself, um having like good levels of flexibility what what some things that you that you offer and you do that that you think helps you compete in the market?
1: I think two things. I think having a business model that has clear social purpose um, and impact is attractive to work in, um, and I think being interviewed by people and knowing that you can work with people who are decent, ambitious people who reflect that that purpose and that motivation is is attractive. I would have like there's loads of other companies that that have similar social purpose and social impact and equally have great people in their team. So you know it's, it's nothing you need third space, but but I think for for people who want that that who want to build products and sell into markets that can achieve that goal in a very measurable and clear way um, and feel motivated by that, feel like the work they're doing, the, the products they're building, the campaigns they're running can really achieve good. I think Space clearly provides that. Um, and I know from feedback from candidates who have come in that when they've been interviewed by our teams and they've been on boarded by our teams, they've thought, yeah, like this is when I wanted to work in this type of business, I wanted to work with these type of people. And they've like, they've, what I hoped for in that culture, and that dynamic Space have delivered. Um, so yeah, like people and purpose. Right? Um, I think we we get at both of those things, and they 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 should be. I think into you know they are obviously closely aligned. And to wrap
0: things up, I mean, uh, a third space hiring at the moment. And if someone's interested listening that that would love to work with you, like what's the best way they can get in touch or apply?
1: Yeah, we we are we're hiring across the board in um, you know engineering, UX research. And then we're hiring our customer team as well. So, kind of account management. I think we're hiring a marketing SEO, but we might fill those roles. They can uh, bypass Confido and come straight to us, um, or they, they they can. We've got a job section on the site um, with all our jobs listed on there. I'll speak to you. Um, yeah, they come to our website and get in touch. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril al Sahimi, and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.